Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. It is late October, and we are on the cusp of some of the best whitetail hunting of the season. The woods are coming alive with rubs and scrapes, and bucks are becoming more and more daylight active. And depending on where you're at in the country, those first does might be coming into estrus at any point in time. Today, we're going to be talking about whitetail rut and post-rut strategies. And with us today is a guy that arguably has some of the most seat time in the woods than anyone around, and that is the one and only Michael Waddell of Bone Collector. How are you doing today, Michael? Doing great. I'm a little bit licking my chops because uh, as we talk and you had that great intro about the rut coming in, I uh, I missed one of my big bucks on my farm here in Georgia last night. So I don't like to start a podcast off talking about failure, but I completely whiffed last night. The deer ended up ducking a little bit, but uh, it'll be, be fun to kind of let you know what he was doing and how he was acting, especially if you're hunting in the south and and, you know, even up north, you're right, as you introduced this podcast, the uh, the season is here. This is the whitetail hunter's Christmas Eve right here. I mean, the, the, the deer is starting to move. It's scraping pre-ruts here, most across the country, uh, especially up north this, this last week around Halloween, as well as when you start talking that first week in November, that's the magical time of year. So it's begun, and it could be one of the the cool things we can talk about of 2020. So a lot of bad things have happened, but a good thing is the fact that actually the rut's almost here. Yeah, the, yeah. There's definitely been some been some difficulties in 2020, but you kind of gotta hang your head high and look at the good stuff. And and fortunately for us outdoorsmen, you know, hunting is still open all over the place, and you can really get out and enjoy those things. So uh, for for those uh, listeners out there that don't really know a lot about you, can you explain kind of who you are and how Bone Collector came to be? Yeah, I've been a really blessed man. I mean, it, to me, it's it's a great American story. I mean, uh, when it comes to what I have a chance to do to make a living, pretty much uh, I got started as a whitetail and turkey guide at Realtree Camouflage, you know, basically right out of high school. Hunting and fishing was what I loved the most. I didn't realize you, you could make a living at it. Obviously, I knew uh, you know, of, of retail stores like Shields. I, I knew of all these products that I loved, that I was a fan of, that I worked and saved my money to buy. But it was when I had a chance to start guiding and then met Bill Jordan, the guys at Realtree, David Blanton, that I started having a chance to run a camera and video back then. We was doing some stuff on TNN, the Nashville Network. We had a show called Realtree Outdoors. That show is still airing right now on Outdoor Channel. And so one thing led to another, and I had a chance to work a couple of shows and promotions, and I started running a camera, producing one thing led to another, and I had a chance to start hosting television shows back in around 2002 for Realtree. And uh, and that led to my opportunity to still be at Realtree, but to break out on my own and start a show called Bone Collector. So really hunting and fishing the outdoors is is what I have a chance to celebrate. And uh, obviously a big fan of what you guys do at the stores um, and big fan of just having a chance to celebrate, you know, everything outdoors from sports as well as the other side of sports that I think is a favorite pastime, and that's, that's outdoors and hunting and fishing. So uh, that's pretty much how I got started. And Bone Collector is a show that we've been airing since 2009. We've been very blessed. We've uh, had a chance to win some fan favorite awards and have a really solid high-rated show on Outdoor Channel. 
as it airs currently. We've had some cool digital projects. And so it's just been a pleasure. And I don't think I've ever been in a time in my career that now I'm more convicted to celebrate and promote the outdoors and this lifestyle um, more now than I ever have been. I think even earlier in my career, I was a little bit more selfish and just concentrating on filling tags and wanting to get a big buck or get one more turkey. And now I feel like I slow down a lot more and I can enjoy exactly what it is we do and having a chance to share that and get somebody else to come into a store to buy a product, to buy a hunting license or a fishing license. I think now that's, that's been even sweeter to be able to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So for those people out there that have aspirations of wanting to film and become a part of the outdoor industry, do you have any advice for those people? I do. Really, it's the same advice I would give anybody in any career. One is, no matter what you do, if you put your heart and soul in it, there's a chance to succeed. So one is, be ready to work. I think a lot of people sometimes look at the outdoor industry, whether it's running a camera or video and or producing, and even as a chance to get a chance to host, or if you want to call it, be a personality for a brand. Uh, you have to be willing to give it your all. You have to be willing to work. So Hard work is the number one thing and, and looking for opportunities and trying to make a difference. I think the biggest thing people probably get blindsided by in their pursuit to be hunting and video and for TV shows and for um, the outdoor channel or these networks is you think about the fun that will be had, but you also think that it can be easy. And sometimes you can arrogantly approach it to think that, well, I'm just going to start off and I'm going to be an outdoor personality. I would tell any young man or even any anybody, you know, older or middle age, uh, start somewhere and, and work your way up. And, and don't be afraid to do more than you're asked to do and find something to do and do something even if it's wrong. And if you'll work hard and keep in mind that the number one goal is to sell hunting license and to celebrate the outdoors and be yourself, I think there's a chance to succeed. There's more opportunity than it ever has been when it comes to podcasts, when it comes to digital media when it comes to network uh, that celebrate outdoors hunting and fishing so there's a lot of opportunity but it isn't about how big an animal that you shoot or even what you shoot a lot of times or how many fish you catch it's about the excitement the sincerity and the legitimacy that you celebrate it and can you be one of those people that people want to share a campfire with that they want to sit around and hang out with that they look forward to you know, throwing some ribs on a smoker or maybe having an adult beverage at the end of the night into where you make it fun. You know, are you somebody that celebrates that, that your family wants to be a part of that, that no matter if you're from north, south, east or west, that you want to, you know, get around each other and have a good time. And so when you celebrate it at a place to where you put fun first, then you got an opportunity. And obviously the technical part of it will come. The big bucks will come and you will get better. So it ain't about how good you are, how kind of professional hunter you are, or what kind of, you know, athlete you are, if you're a hunter. It's really about your enthusiasm and your legitimacy and the foundation of what hunting means to you. And I think if you keep those things in mind, hard work, foundation, sincerity, legitimacy, you got a chance to make it, whether it's running a camera, whether it's editing, whether it's hosting a podcast, or even being a personality uh, as part of a show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just brought up so many great points and, you know, that's how we feel at Shields, too, is, is it's really just a celebration of the outdoors. You know, social media nowadays can be a bit jaded. Everyone's just posting their biggest pictures. But, you know, it's truly about getting out there and, you know, making memories and just enjoying the experiences. 
There, there's no doubt. And I think that gets missed. I mean, we're in a world to where everything we do, uh, whether it's this conversation you and I can have about hunting, whether it gets technical, whether it's just story time with Waddy and we're just telling stories about life in general or, or, or big bucks that got away or some that we put tags on. Right now, we're in a place that we can celebrate things immediately. You know, we can show our pictures. We can show our personalities. We can show uh, the real side or we can somewhat fake it and show a glamour shot side of what we do, whether we're a girl that wants attention with our looks or maybe we think we'll get more attention in camouflage or with a bow or, you know, or maybe it's a guy that thinks if I can get a big buck, maybe I'll get an opportunity for a contract. In reality, it's so simple. It really is just about your true passion. And if your true passion is just to be a celebrity, or if your true passion is just to be somebody with a lot of followers, or if your true passion is to be popular and you try to run a popularity contest, you will fail almost every time. But if you just sincerely let people know who you are, and if you have a foundation of legitimacy and excitement around hunting and fishing, you don't even have to be the best because your best is coming out through what you are doing through this outdoors and Good Lord's Renewable Resource and the people that you meet in the camps and the places you see, the things you see. So even though that's pretty deep in philosophy, the foundation of being successful in this field is not that hard. It's just about making it about what we are all trying to do. And the reason we all go into shields and we buy that brand new Hoyt bow and buy a $30, $40 pack of broadheads, the really reason that gets us out there is just to be out there, to go outside the doors and to have fun. And so I think sometimes the industry in today's world, we forget that it's not a competition. And I say it all the time. I, I, I don't think hunting makes you a badass. I, I think uh, it's just badass we get a chance to hunt. And so even though hunting can be considered a sport, it's different than baseball or football to where you can excel above somebody else and that gets you a position on the team. And if you play in the NFL, maybe get you a better salary in this world the big bucks that we put tags on are a bonus. That is a personal victory that we have. I don't think it's necessarily necessary to get a better, better contract or more endorsements or more followers. I think the ultimate thing is how do you celebrate it and how much fun do they see you having through that? And that's what is contagious. That's, that's my personal opinion. Um, and that's what I've seen. And that, that's what always gravitated me to certain personalities and really hunting itself. It's not just about the hunt and filling tags. It's really about those breakfasts afterwards, those stories, those times, those different personalities, whether it was old Scott Steiner who would always eat eight biscuits after we got through hunting. <laughs> nobody got a biscuit after the hunt. You guys have that up north where you're looking for a piece of sausage around a fire and, you know, old, old Bubba Joe Blankenship's and ate everything before you even had a chance to get to camp. And so it's so many things that go into it. And that guy that's just solely focused on killing a buck to get the tape measure out to measure that buck, man, he can live a lonely life out there trying to trying to just kill that big buck. If you take it all in and in the process you are lucky to get some big bucks and fill some tags on some magnificent animals, holy cow, look at the memories. Look at look at what went into it and look at how fun that how much fun you had doing that. And I think when people see that, that becomes something you want to step into that world. And that's what makes people want to come to y'all stores. Buy them some camouflage, buy them a fishing lure, buy them a bow, buy them a new gun or a shotgun. So uh, that's a long-winded version of how passionate I am about, you know, what this outdoors means to, to me. And I think it's a very simple way that we can all celebrate it. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's some excellent insight, Michael. Very very good to to hear that point of view. And like you said, it's really just a celebration of the outdoors and you know preserving for the future too. So um, absolutely, let's uh, let's dive into the meat and potatoes of this. Let's really get into the to the rut and the post rut tactics now. So um, you know, starting out, what do you look for in an area to set up in during the rut? Man, there's a lot. The, the good thing about the the rut or even this pre-rut, which right now, you know, this last week in October, um, I, I'm assuming and hoping this is airing um, pretty much as we as we shoot it or, or talk about things. Yeah, um, the goal is to turn it around and have this come out tomorrow. So I've got some oh, work sweet. ahead of me. <laughs> sweet. All right. Well, that, that, that to me, uh, you know, when you start getting it this time of year and this time of year, the fortunate thing, it happens this time of year all across the country so if you are blessed to hunt multiple states you can only really pick one place to go that last week of october mm-hmm. one place to be that first week in november most of us don't have you know lear jets and private aviation that we can just jump and you know shoot a deer one evening and be in kansas the next day and so uh depending on where the rut is happening the, the most but pretty much the last week in october the first week in november you know if you what i like to do in the areas i'm looking for is one is you know, a lot of people ask me is what are you looking for and when do my deer rut? The good news about rutting whitetails, even though it's theorized and this time of year, the first little spike that runs a doe by like the ruts, ruts on baby, they're locked down with does. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And, and usually any place you hunt, whether it's your home turf or you visit, you can about talk to a biologist and based on them pulling fetuses from does that either had been taken to processors or even a roadkill that they can do studies on these state and fish uh, biologists, they can kind of give you that gestation. I think that's the word <laughs> of, of when that doe became impregnated and, and, you know, maybe that, that following year. And they can say that, look, in this area, this County, the deer are breeding the most, let's say November 7th through November 9th. So what I've always done is I'm a traveling hunter and even around here, um, you can just about subtract 10 to 15 days from that particular date to where, the biologists can tell you that most of the peak breeding was done. And if you subtract it back 10 to 15 days, a lot of times what you'll find, you will see deer that are in that preliminary rut to where they're cruising, they're, they're looking. And all the way up to that lockdown stage where most of those deers are being bred, you, you, can, um, you can see a lot of buck activity. So where do I go for, to find that buck activity? Most of the time you start getting close to that, you, you just need to find the does. So if you can find an area to where there is a food source, you find deer movement when you are looking to go to that rut, especially that pre-rut. If you can find a number of does and where they are concentrated, it's a little different than early season where sometimes these bigger bucks are loners. They run in bachelor groups or they're by themselves and they don't want to be around all that heavy traffic of other deer. They're looking for that community. They're looking for those does. And so uh, that's what I'll do is I'll just try to find deer in general. And when I get to that you know, last week in October, first week in November, I want to be around the hub of Whitefield deer and then obviously try to find some areas in the morning that I can slip in that, that maybe I go undetected that's right off a green field or a crop field. So uh, finding the deer, and if you find the deer, you'll find that buck that's cruising through trying to find that first doe to cut out of the herd. Mm-hmm. Are, you, uh, are you putting any focus on setting up on buck sign versus, uh, versus congregated does, or are you basically solely focused on where that doe is going to be at depends on the time of year if it's like in that lull time of year that everybody talks about this october lull 
yes, I will look for a lot of rubs and scrapes. But that typically, even though that looks really ruddy, my personal opinion is there's not a lot of breeding or nothing's happening there. That's just a buck who is kind of like us that's been watching the NFL football game and you see the shrapnel of our hot wings and tater skins and, you know, know, leftover Mountain Dews. We've been spending a lot of time there, but we're not really getting a lot done there. And so obviously uh, that scenario changed. So, yeah, if you're on a laid back, spend a lot of time in there, you're going to leave a lot of signs. So, yes, in that lull period, say that first couple weeks in October, I definitely, if I see some buck sign, that lets me know these bucks ain't, they're not bedding far. They're spending a lot of time in this area. You know, they're, they're peeing, they're, they're scraping, they're rubbing, they're spending a lot of time. But as I get into that last week in October, I know those bucks are going to be leaving those areas. They still might be bedding and using those areas, but they're going to be looking for those does. So they're going to be cruising a lot more. So, uh, for me, a lot of that sign that looks very ruddy is indeed a sign that maybe it ain't as crazy uh, with doe activity, not necessarily, but obviously those first areas that start having a lot of does, those bucks will come into it. Even those does are not maybe ready to breed. Those bucks will quickly start marking territory. They're working out all the sexual frustration. They're ready to go. They're not interested in eating. They're really wanting to breed, but it's not quite time. I think personally that's when these deer are the most vulnerable is when they are first come out of hiding and they're not sometimes they go from a nocturnal animal to making mistakes 30 minutes to an hour into daylight uh, in the morning and maybe you know they're coming out 30 minutes an hour early before nightfall and it's not just because they're hungry it's because they're sexually frustrated and when you can get that scenario and that perfect storm of where these does are and they're constantly coming to check them man, you can have some opportunity. Uh, and I think it's the best opportunity. Mm-hmm. What are some great ways to take advantage of those frustrations? Like from a calling standpoint or setup changes, what are you thinking there? I definitely, um, I definitely, it, you know, it, it depends, everything's different, like, um, all across the country, like where I'm hunting in the South, very tight quarters. Uh, we don't have as many open areas, a lot of planted pines, thickets, not as many funnels. You start getting into the Midwest if you maybe have some of those crop field edges, double corners. Um, I love double corners. Greg Miller, um, a native right there by y'all, he, he's one that taught me a lot about hunting double corners. Getting an area to where deer are going to be cruising a lot, to where they're going to make mistakes. So a lot of times that time of year, if you can get an area to where you can just see deer and you see a buck that cruises by, maybe you're still bow hunting, but almost taking a rifle hunt approach to it to visually see those deer, they are not typically going to be locked down with a doe. They're hoping for this frust- this this opportunity to have a doe. And a lot of times at that point, when you see these deer traveling these edges, and maybe it's a CRP field or a grown-up field, a clear cut, at that point, yeah, a grunt call, a rattle bag, maybe it is a decoy. Man, you can do some unbelievable magic with calling that time of year when you get your solo buck, a mature buck that's cruising, He's been looking all night. He ain't found anything to breed. He's cracking daylight. You're in a stand. This deer is not going to even be feeding by you. But you're in an area, a double corner, that that maybe he is going to walk through this area. And you can hit him with a grunt call, snort wheeze, or rattle. A lot of times that deer will turn and not just walk, but trot right into your stand because he thinks that's an area he's been looking so hard. So he's anxious, 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 just like us when somebody brings an appetizer plate up. We know we're going to get a filet mignon sooner or later, but we're starving. And you throw those freaking mozzarella sticks, we freaking digging in. And so I think that's the kind of analogy I would use for that big buck. He hears that that scenario of what he thinks he's been looking for for the last several days. 
a lot of times you can manipulate them with calls. And so where I'm looking for in these situations is areas that I can see deer, especially if I'm in an area that I'm unfamiliar with, you know, looking at, um, we use base maps a lot. I love that out. That gives me an idea of kind of where I might want to start. So I'll get into areas that I can see for a long ways and see what these deer are doing. And a lot of times through fine tuning where I really want to get based on where I think these deer want to move through. A lot of times we'll be able to manipulate one in that pre-rut time of year with a call or a rattle bag. And we don't even have to tweak our stands. We'll make him come to an area that he wasn't even naturally going to come to. But he thinks that, you know, what he's hoping for is happening that particular morning or that particular evening. Mm hmm. Yeah. In terms of your calling, are you ever doing blind calling or do you strictly reserve that to, uh, to when you have a visual on a deer and how do you know when to grunt versus bleat versus rattle or even roar? I don't do personally, I do, I don't do a lot of blind calling. Typically, you know, I, I'm, I'm usually trying to observe deer first and then, um, manipulate them once I get to a point that I can see their reactions. And I think that reaction alone will give me an opportunity to know what I'm going to hit them with. So the way I call deer is, is no different than the way I would work elk or, or a turkey. If you can see their, their attitude toward the call, you can get away with a lot more. And I've even had opportunities, let's say a snort wheeze, which is probably my favorite call to manipulate a mature buck. I killed a buck with a snort wheeze the first week in September out in Wyoming. The deer was coming by, coming back from alfalfa field, had no intentions. He was coming 150 yards. I snort wheezed at this deer, and he turned and looked, and I snort wheezed again. And this deer, not in an aggressive way, out of curiosity of wondering why a deer would be up there, you know, being aggressive, walked all the way in. I got a 40-yard shot with my bow and killed a 155-inch whitetail in Wyoming. So deer are vocal and I do like to call when I can see them. I will blind call in Georgia a lot of times if nothing's happening, especially late in the morning. I will I will call. But a lot of times if I feel pretty good about my setup, I will have calls available, but more to do it when I get a visual on that, that deer, especially um, if it being a buck from long range. And I would say I typically start off with a grunt. If I see the deer, I grunt a couple times first. But – be be a little bit more aggressive. I think people are kind of halfway timid. It's kind of like calling a turkey. You, you don't know if you want to hear them. You don't want to get too much, and you got this insecurity to think, well, this might spook them. If you have confidence that you're just making a sound like a deer grunting, which there is there is so many noises and grunts that, that all can simulate that sound, I will grunt first, and a lot of times deer hear it. He'll look and pay no attention, keep walking. From that point, I'll snort wheeze at him. And, and a lot of times, that aggression of a snort wheeze, I've had deer that will not even react or even really look at a grunt call, and then you snort wheeze, and they will turn on a dime and come. And then my last option, if I'm sight, sight uh, working a deer, is, is rattling. And, and if you go through that scenario and they don't turn and come to you, then you know that buck is not happening. You, you can kind of rest assured either the person or that deer has no aggression. But I would say in the right doe-to-buck ratio, you're going to typically get a reaction from that deer. If you, if you see him and he's truly in a cruise mode, you will get some type of reaction and you might have an opportunity for that deer to come. And when that deer is approaching, you better make sure you know which way the wind's blowing or drifting to, because you can guarantee he's going to drift to that side. That is where he's going to be coming at. So, uh, so that you can guarantee. Mm -hmm. Very good information. 
when you're calling at a deer, are you generally like blowing right at him or are you pointing to the side to kind of make sure he doesn't know exactly where you're coming from? To me, it's all about, you know, what that deer's, you know, what his activity is when, when I see him. A lot of time, if he's clipping through, because keep in mind, if it's nocturnal, a lot of times a buck, if he's on a mission and he's really walking through bedding areas, he, he's cruising. He's truly in a transition cruise mode. So I usually will get aggressive. And a lot of times, you know, let's face it, we're on our phone, we're over there playing Yahtzee or, you know, <laughs> some type of puzzle or Angry Birds, whatever it is, you're playing or texting, looking at Instagram. And a lot of times we look up and the buck is almost through the flat. You're like, oh my God. So a lot of times I am, I'm usually right at him aggressively, right off the bat, not just make sure you hear me and see your reaction. Because keep in mind, a lot of times you're going to be 150, 200 yards when you see this deer, you're bow hunting. Obviously, if you're rifle hunting, no need to grunt. Just pick it up and let him hold it. You know, you, he's made the mistake. He was cruising, and he made the mistake. But if you're trying to get this deer within 50 yards with a bow and arrow, go ahead and let him hear it, and, I, and I'll make sure, and I'll point it right at him. And maybe if I got that deer, if he's sitting there looking, and he's looking in our tree, well, obviously, you don't want to be seen. If that, ne- that next grunt, I might, I might try to throw it off to the side a little bit just to try to create – an illusion of where I, I'm hoping I can be some kind of ventriloquist, but what you will find the pinpoint accuracy, just like a turkey or an elk, they will pinpoint that. And most of the time, even from the first grunt, they will be on the way. So many times I've had them kind of start coming to a grunt and have to finish them with a snort wheeze. I've had that happen. But at that point, what's so beautiful about being in that situation, a typical whitetail hunt that takes strategic luck to be in the right place at the right time when this deer decides not to be nocturnal you all of a sudden become a hunter, uh, like a turkey hunter, like a deer, like an elk hunter, and you are manipulating this deer with a vocalization. And that is one of the most amazing opportunities and feelings if you're a whitetail hunter because that doesn't happen, and it cannot happen, but only a certain window within the year. So when you get that opportunity, it's, it's just magical. And when they do finally commit, keep in mind, they're going to come to the downwind side of you. They're not coming to skirt you at 100 yards when they finally can figure out where they want to be they're coming to your tree so a lot of times depending on the wind you might get you a 10 15 yard shot and it is just adrenaline rush Mm -hmm. are you setting up your stand locations anticipating that then i definitely I, i definitely am anticipating if i'm calling to a deer which way the wind's blowing so my stand location and um it was don kiske uh i never get it was a valuable lesson i learned he killed a big old deer on video one time in Iowa. And I never forget this buck uh, cruised by him one morning and he didn't even call at him. And I said, Don, Don, why didn't you call at him? He said, well, the wind was out of the north. It was blowing kind of at him. He said, if I would have called, that deer would have circled so quick on me that he would have winded me. There's no doubt in my mind I would have called at that deer the first time because this deer was obviously cruising looking for does. But Don was smart enough to know it was an evening hunt that the thermals were pulling down that this deer would have winded him quickly. And so sure enough, it wasn't 10 minutes later that deer circled and was coming on a better um, angle where the wind wasn't blowing. And when he got past him on the other side, he called. And and that deer immediately started trotting in and was coming back around the tree to try to get where he would have been going first on the other angle. And Don shot him at 25 yards. And that to me was a high level whitetail 202 tip on calling to where Don knew kind of like if you're a coyote hunter 
he knew that there was that if the thermals that he was reading correctly, that that deer probably wasn't going to come. And so I don't think I could have done that. But what I will set up for when I start calling, I will already have an idea which side of the tree that deer is going to be on because it's going to be on that where the wind's blowing because he's not coming. He's not up there thinking, dude, I got, I got old Waddell from Georgia calling at me. Let me just make sure it ain't him. No, he 100% believes it's another buck, 100% believes that there's probably a, a doe and estrus. So keep in mind, his number one thing he trusts more than anything is his scent. So he is coming in to smell to get to size up the situation. So he's not the only danger at this that time that he presently is worried about is not a hunter. He's presently worried about what bucket is and where is this doe. So he's sizing up the situation with his nose. Well, guess what? That could quickly change to where, yep, I'm coming in. I'm going to fight. I might get a girlfriend in here. But then, oh, my God, I smell a human. I'm out. So they're not coming trying to smell you. They're trying to smell that deer that they hear calling. Oh. That's some awesome information. And yeah, that's definitely agree. That's either whitetail 202 or 303 on that one. <laughs> and it's just like elk. I mean, it's just like elk. And, you know, we always say like a turkey, which I know a lot of people listen to are dour turkey hunters. You know, we always say if a turkey could smell, we, we might not ever kill one because what if a turkey was trying to, you know, scent check you as he come in and he's looking with those 10 time binoculars or whatever it is that the biologists say they got I mean, you couldn't move you, or you couldn't you couldn't um, hardly manipulate them, but luckily they can't smell, but an elk can smell. So that's why working in tandems and duos, a lot of time elk hunting, you know, you might be 80 yards in front of the collar and that elk is trying to circle this collar that, that you know. And so you're kind of doing this spot and stalk, you know, slipping through the woods, just this Navy SEAL maneuver trying to get that angle to kill him before he smells you and definitely before you can get and smell this collar that he thinks is a cow or potentially another bull. So same scenario with whitetails or, or, or hunting coyotes. So you definitely have to think about that. And one thing that I love about calling the most is on those calm, clear, cold mornings where you got a good thermal rise um, on a good frosty morning, a lot of times you are truly invisible because your thermals are going straight up and those deer can't smell you. And I, my theory, my theory is the fact that I think a lot of the bigger bucks, uh, record book bucks are killed in the morning, especially with the bow and arrow because of the thermals, not necessarily because of just deer movement, um, because those deer are more vulnerable to make a mistake with their nose. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, you can, you can fool the eyes and ears uh, of whitetails now and then, but you're, you're never going to fool that nose so and it, i mean it makes yeah. perfect sense with the rising thermals being able to just kind of get away with a little bit more so there's no doubt and you guys sell it all you know at the stores i mean there's there's amazing product out there you know the the you know we use a lot of that code blue the, the decode yeah, i mean it's, it's scientifically proven it eliminates a lot of bacteria you know you got the different cover scents the the nose jammers you got you know that liquid smoke the code blue you got all these masking scents you got ozonics, you got all these things, you got, you know, you got it built into your clothing to help eliminate odor. And they legitimately do help, but it's nearly impossible. Those are just little small things that can help you. And I definitely think a lot of times they're worth the investment. However, it, it's really hard to fool that deer's nose. Those are just things that, that you can help hopefully get by with, with just a little bit of opportunity when that deer is at 40 yards and he's trying to smell you. He's got a little scent maybe that's the, the the investment that was worth it that you at least was able to get to shot versus if you just didn't do anything. So 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can you can definitely get away with a lot more when you're using those scent control products. Right. So you you touched on nocturnal bucks earlier in in this conversation. How do you handle targeting nocturnal bucks? When do you know when to target one? Are you using trail cameras? What are you thinking there? Well, one thing, too, I'll say about nocturnal bucks, a lot of times people think that it is, you know, human pressure that drives a deer or especially a buck to be nocturnal. Um, That can be the case. However, by rule of thumb, every whitetail from does to the bucks, they're nocturnal animals. They technically, whether it's cold or hot, a whitetail deer enjoys the cover of nightfall. They are like vampires. They get excited when it's nighttime. They do most of their breeding at night. They feed at night. So even in areas that have no pressure, if you put a pile of bait out, if you legally can, you will find that with no pressure, even in a state park or a refuge, if you could, you will find that uh, so much of that activity is nocturnal. So the really, yes, the, the thing that I look for is I'm if I can use bait to get a picture, or if I'm in a state that I can legally hunt over bait, or if it's a food plot, or if it's a trail. The biggest thing I do now, and the technology in these trail cameras are absolutely amazing, um, you can see when things and conditions get right. You'll start seeing patterns to where maybe it's your target eight-pointer that has been nocturnal all summer, but all of a sudden it starts getting about October 17th and 18th. This deer is not leaving the area. You're not going to run them out. People's like, man, I, I don't want to run this deer out and hunt him. Well, it's hard to run that deer out because you got to keep in mind, if you are, let's just call it a chum pile that I call it that you're trying to get an inventory of your deer, and it's summertime, and it's legal. Maybe it's not legal to hunt over, but it's legal to get these pictures. You're going in there with a four-wheeler, typically with your little four-year-old kid and your wife or girlfriend or whatever it is, riding in there, beating around, you know, throwing out Big and J, whatever it is, and you'll leave two hours after dark, your big buck that you're praying you can get in range, you know, come opening day or November is going to be there. Two days later, you come over there, you got a Saturday off and you're like, man, I'm going to ride back over to the police and I'm a hunting ground. And you ride in there and you beat around and you think about that. That's real pressure. You, you might get out. You, uh, you know, if you're with it, with the lady or, you know, usually they're going to use the restroom or something. And, and again, I, you, you don't worry about it and you cannot run that deer off. He's like a goat in the corral. He's still coming to your pile. So as it gets closer to the season, a lot of times what happens is when you find these situations, you really just have to wait for that buck to let you know and kind of create a pattern. And I've noticed a lot of times they'll start making a mistake. Now, a lot of times he might make one mistake all year, especially if it's in just a feeding pattern. But if you see a buck starting to make a mistake, and maybe it is you're trying to figure out, wait a minute, bucks are showing up, that might let you know that this buck is starting to jump the gun, maybe not because of the food source, because of, of the rut. So, yes, I will say the long-winded answer to that is I do love trail cameras to help me figure out when my optimal strategic luck could come into place. Because, just like everybody listening or watching, we have families, we have jobs, and those cameras can give you an idea of, of a reoccurring pattern of mistakes are deer that are staying nocturnal. So when you start seeing some mistakes, I think that's when you, you know, you, you can talk to your boss and say, hey, can, can I have the next three days off? I need to, or at least let me have these next three evenings off because 
you know, I got an opportunity versus blindly just taking off work. I think these trail cameras can give you an opportunity, especially the ones that send them to your phone, your cellular cameras. If you got an opportunity, you might have that, that camera might be burning up all night. You know, it's going to be cold and clear. And two, not two days before you, this buck cruise by at seven thirty-eight, right at daylight or an hour after daylight. That's the time to call your boss. It's like, Hey boss, do, do you mind, you know, this morning, or, or maybe if you want to push it, go ahead and get the stand. Just call him like, Hey man, I'm not feeling good. <laughs> I'm not feeling good. I'm going to be, I'm going to be in there about 10 o'clock this morning. I had to do a few things. I ain't saying lie, but those cameras will give you an opportunity to know that it's happening. It's going on. There's a chance of a mistake. So that's how I hunt a lot of times. And those trail cameras have changed the game. I will say to add to that, don't let them lull you to sleep. The buck that I missed last night, these deer are starting to cruise. I have not had a hard horn picture of this deer since I had not got one. The last picture I got of him was early September. He still was in velvet. I was wondering where this particular buck had gone. This deer came in to a food plot. I shot and missed him, and he went real close to my camera, but not at the camera, and I still wouldn't have a picture. So if I hadn't hunted and had the video evidence on our Bone Collector TV show, I would not even know that deer had been in the area. And I don't think where I end up shooting at him, I don't think I would have got a picture of him last night based on where my camera was. So sometimes you do have to be out there in person to figure it out. But those trail cameras help you a lot when it comes to personal time, family, and jobs. It gives you a better uh, strategic statistical approach to knowing when that deer could be making mistakes. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Cameras are so beneficial, but they can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Like you said, in that hunting instance, you know, sometimes people might not hunt an area because, you know, I don't have a big buck on camera yeah. there, but you know, nothing, nothing replaces some actual seat time and being able to see 360 degrees versus about, you know, 60 degrees in your trail camera. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. So when, when you're setting up your trail cameras, do you usually put stands within like shooting distance of that camera or do you like to back your hunting setups off of where your cameras are at? I end up a, a lot of times where, you know, especially early season, our new property, I'm always just putting as many or plethora of trail cameras out, you know, as much as I can afford. And then I will adjust the stand strategy based on once I get an inventory and a lot of times I don't get crazy strategic uh, when I'm putting out my cameras a lot of times, especially if it is early season and you can use an attractant to get the pictures. Now, if it's in an area to where you legally take up, take a, um, you know, Montana, I'm sure there's places in Wisconsin. I don't know all the rules there. I hadn't hunted a lot there. You might not can ever because of CWD ever put out any type of bait, you know, uh, so you have to use natural habitat, natural food sources. So at that place, I'm still in putting the cameras out to get an inventory. And through that process, once I kind of realize that there's three or four big mature bucks that I really would like to maybe put a tag on, then I can snoop in that area and start putting stands up more strategically. And yes, if it's in a good spot, let's say it is a food plot or a food source or acorn tree or, you know, soft mass tree, persimmon or apple, I will, I will put it right there. I'll just keep in mind too, uh, one thing about, let's just say a place where you can legally bait, or let's just say that legal bait is a persimmon tree or a white oak acorn tree, one off tree. Keep in mind, no matter which way the wind blowing, again, getting back to like we was talking calling 90% of the time, those deer, especially mature buck, will circle that food source to get a good wind on as he's approaching. Once again, danger is one thing, but also he's trying to size up what is under this tree. Is there other deer? Is there coyotes? Is there bobcats? You might be out west. It could be are there mountain lions. Or I, who knows? 
So you got to keep in mind, if you get really, really close to that food source, there is even better chance you can get winded as that deer is circling in. So you might think you got a perfect wind, but as that deer comes in, I've seen them come around to the backside of that food source and they'll wind you before you can still get a shot. So a lot of times I will pull off 30, 40 yards from a bait pile or a food source or an acorn tree. And a lot of times that deer will make a mistake. But then again, you can sit there and get real strategic and think of it. And I've had deer come straight in. I'm sitting there 30, 40 yards in a stick. And I'm like, why didn't I just get right on top of this? The buck just walked right in and, and <laughs> ate carelessly. So sometimes you can overthink it. But as long as you understand their approach to a food source or to a call, it gives you a better opportunity to know what traditionally they will do. So you have those rules of thumbs, and that, that's one of them right there. So I'm not afraid to get too close, but a lot of times I am aware of the fact that where are these deer bedding, and as they're approaching this food source where I'm getting these trail cam pictures, am I going to be able to get a shot either at these coming to eat at this place or to work potentially to scrape, or am I you know, committed to shooting him exactly at this spot where my camera is? That's the things that you have to fill out. Every hunter has to kind of digest and statistically decide how they want to approach that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So situation for you, you, uh, you're in a state where you can legally bait, you're trying to develop an inventory. And you mentioned that, uh, that some deer, especially like a wily old buck will, will circle it and sometimes maybe not commit all the way. Do you ever set up trail cameras like 30 to 50 yards, you know, additional trail cameras, 30 to 50 yards off of your bait sources to try and find those deer that are in the area, but not willing to commit to your bait site? I have, I have not done that, uh, very little. Usually if I am doing that, it's typically, I've already got that buck observed inventory of him. And now I'm coming around there to try to find possibly the trail or maybe better figure out where I think this deer could be bedding. Um, I, I would say the number one reason I don't do that. I think that's a great strategy. I think the number one reason is the affordability um, because if I'm in a new area, what I found, I would say your high percentages of that deer, maybe not coming the first night or the first time he smells this corn pile or pile of big and jay. Um, I think eventually that deer is going to come on in and eat, whether he's a big deer or a young buck or, you know, a doe, they're eventually going to come to that bait pile. So you can about rest assured your percentages are very high. You will get an inventory of the deer on that area on this particular bait pile if it's legal. So a lot of times, if that's the case, and I got a new place, and let's just say I got five or six cameras, I will typically want to be greedily have all of those cameras on all those other food sources. And then once I find, after four or five days or a week or two, and I find out, wait a minute, you know, there's nothing but does and small bucks on these three cameras, but these two cameras have really good bucks on them. Man, now I might pull a camera from that deal and I might start doing more of what you just suggested to try to find out where this deer might be coming from. But I think typically out of the expense of trail cameras, especially the cellular cameras, I'm more using them to to try to just get the true inventory of what's there. And then I will use multiple trail cameras to more dial in how I want to hunt and where I might want to put a stand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense just from a statistical standpoint, you know, finding your deer yeah. right away. And then once you're starting to hone it in, maybe move another trail camera to that spot and really hone in onto that trail where they're, where they're going at. So. And one uh, thing I, one thing I would add to that too is now 
I think that idea that, that you mentioned, I think it's a heck of an idea. So, you know, one thing I am, I'm friends with a lot of these hunting personalities and some, some of these deer hunters that let's face it, we're very spoiled because our job is typically we got partners. So we've got deals to where we have, you know, just like the professional softball player, he's got the best bats and unlimited supply of them that, that y'all sell at Shields. I mean, he's hitting home runs, but he's post to. And so you get people like the Don Kiskies or the Lee Lakoskis or the Drury's. The amount of trail cameras that they that they run would blow your mind. It's staggering. Keep in mind, they get them for free. They're not having to buy these cameras. So they run a staggering amount of trail cameras for inventory. But as you know, I always am the, you know, I'm spoiled too. Don't get me wrong. I'm very spoiled when it comes to some of the products and, and the amount of products I get to use. But I always try to take a blue collar approach to what if and what would the hunter that I'm talking to that's generating $20,000 a year. So I do everything in my power to take a practical approach to make sure I'm doing some very practical things. So versus running, 150 trail cameras i'll try to make sure i can do the same thing with 15 and and then if i do have access to 150 i will spread that on some other properties or send them out of state to some other places i get to hunt but yeah i would say trail cameras the people have access to them or that can truly afford them where money is not an object it'll blow you away you can't have too many trail cameras i mean matter of fact that's what i would if you want a good tip from me every time every birthday every holiday everything ask your wife or if you're a husband and you got a wife that likes to hunt, buy them a trail camera. Buy them a trail camera, whether it's a wireless or whether it's a card camera. A hunter or an outdoorsman cannot have too many of them in their in their Rubbermaid bin to put out. So that, <laughs> that's go. a good gift. Trail cameras, the gift that keep on giving. Keep on giving. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you, I mean, you touched on that there's a lot of people out there that don't have the ability to buy all these cameras don't have the ability to buy land, um, have to, have to hunt public stuff. What are your, some recommendations on, on hunting public land where you have to deal with high levels of pressure? It's the most difficult situation that you can be in. And my respect level of the people who shoot all their deer, whether it's just for recreation or trophy bucks and our does, um, I have so much respect. Um, because you can throw a lot of your traditional ideas, even that we've talked about in this first 30, 40 minutes, and just throw it out the window because you have no way to create sanctuaries. You have no way to create areas of, of, of exclusivity. Even if you got a hunting club, you know, sometimes, depending on the rules, you can have some areas of exclusivity to where, you know, maybe they said, look, we're going to stay out of this 100 acres or this 50 acres and just leave it a sanctuary. Or, you know what, you know, Joe and, and Ralph, we're going to let you have this this particular area and we'll stay out of there. So you got some respect and you got some, you know, some handshake deals and, and verbal commitments. Public, throw it all out the window. It's, it's one man to his own. You're going through and sometimes you let, you're just as likely to kill the big buck that's been run by the beagle or or by the guy who got down early and, you know, had to use the restroom and he's walking back to his truck. Um, so sometimes the, the strategy is completely becomes luck. But I would say overall, the, the times I've hunted the most public, which I have hunted public in Iowa, I've hunted some edges of public in Kansas. I've also hunted a lot of public ground 
in elk country, my all my biggest elk come from public ground. I do a lot of times studying, studying topos, studying maps. Now, like I mentioned earlier, you got these base maps. You can know every little angle. And so that could be to where I'm probably going to make some people mad that have private land that butts up to these public areas. It could be that you know that this property line on this particular WMA or public hunting butts up to a very unbelievable farm that maybe you've seen on TV. Well, obviously, you know they got all the food sources there. They can legally do all these things and have the money to do it. So you can kind of get some leftovers on those property lines. And um, so it's, it's, it's the closest you can get to being able to trespass legally to a great piece of private ground. Um, obviously, you have to pay a lot more attention to saddles and natural corridors that those deer are going to make mistakes. Typically, you're not going to be in there to have as much time to scout. So you have to go with your gut instinct more. And, and really, when it gets down to it, I think you have to go to some, so some very almost tournament fishing type tactics to where you are looking for things and habits of the traditional hunter that might be hunting along with you. I would say getting there a little early or staying a little late in the morning because now you can depend on some strategic luck. And what I mean by that, if you know that 90% of the people are going to be hunting from daylight, which might crack around 10 to 6 or 6 o'clock in the morning, and by rule, you know, I'd say most hunters that hunt, you know, you're going to put your three or four hours in in the morning and come back and do it three or four hours at night. And, and you know, a little lunch, a little conversation, a little little you know, high-five, and then you're going to be back in stand. So essentially you're hunting all day minus a few times. So if you know that majority of people in that area are probably going to be hunting around 9.30 to 10, then they're going to get down, and guess what? They're going to be doing the Cherokee Stomper. They're going to be scouting. So a lot of times you can sit in the stand, and you can have some some drives and some opportunity to get deer up and moving when typically you can use the pressure to your advantage. Uh, and so you use the people leaving the stand or go and get, get back on their foil or UTVs or ATVs to get out of the woods, or maybe they want to spend 30 minutes walking through that area. And so many times you'll hear somebody kills a really big buck with a bow the deer slinking through the woods or going out the back door as hunters are in there you know still trying to find a place to hunt on public so uh you know i don't know if any of that type of helps uh, helps but I, I think there's a lot of little small details and i think the best hunters in the country especially when it comes to whitetail hunters are those who consistently kill big bucks on public ground because you got to use very untraditional strategies and habits because even on private ground Hunting whitetails, you can give all your strategy that you want. You can have an inventory, but when you're hunting a nocturnal animal, it takes a look. So I always say the best whitetail hunter is the best strategic luck uh, strategist. That's what he is. He uses st strategy and he uses luck. You combine the two and you get the perfect day, you're going to find success. We haven't even talked about shot placement and being this efficient killer. You still got to be that. You still got to close the coffin if he makes a mistake. That's a whole nother level of being a good hunter is being a killer. So when you add up all this, the strategic look and strategy that goes into hunting public is to a whole nother level, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just a kind of a brand new chess game. Just so much strategy involved, especially on, on public land. So one thing you didn't talk about at all with, the, with that is your entry and exit routes. What is mm -hmm. your what is your strategy on entry and exit routes? Um, you know, public and private, do they differ? Um, you know, I, I I would say yes and no. 
I tell you one thing I've noticed, and I have had a lot of experience hunting public ground, say turkey hunting. So I think what happens a lot of times when you think of public ground, you think you got to enter and go into the deepest, darkest center of a property. So in a lot of cases, that can help you because if you will venture, if it's a hiking area, you can get to an area that maybe no other people other than Cameron Haynes would dare to hike to. However, don't lull yourself into overthinking it. Some of the best places to hunt on public are right by the check-in board or right by the main entrance. When you got 30 trucks and five, you know, 500 four-wheelers going by, everybody is, guess what, going to the deepest, darkest place. Sometimes right around the entrances of WMAs is some of your best hunting. Sometimes the same can be said around the hunting club, you know, where everybody's hanging out in the morning, drinking their coffee, strategizing on where they're going to put their pen. Man, one of the biggest bucks I ever killed on my hunting lease was literally 200 yards from the sign-in board. There's no more loud traffic than right there to sign-in board. Everybody in the club at that particular time was a 15-club membership. Every morning, every evening, stopped there. And I killed one of my biggest bucks 200 yards from it. So sometimes I would say uh, your entry and exit, it can matter. I think that entry and exit is more concealment to if you have respect and people start trying to piggyback on they know you're on to something. As far as the deer, I don't think that approach is a whole lot different or more than what it would be on private. And um, I, I, th- I think you can take a – that's just my opinion. Again, I, I've never been one of those guys that my way is the only way. This is just my opinion. I, I don't think my entry and exit is much different because especially on public, the problem with your entry and exit, you can control that, but you ain't going to control the entry and exit on the other hunters and how many that could be. So sometimes that thought process and that process and that it can be thrown out the window. And um, so I think that can be, so my entry and exit on public is completely is more disguised to trick the other hunters, not as much the game. So Mm -hmm. makes sense. So moving that to a, like a private land perspective, say you have a buck that you've had on camera all year, you know, starting from summer going on through, and now you can finally hunt them in the fall. Um, how worried are you about entry and exit routes there? Like that the deer is going to see you before you ever get to your spot and you, and you never even get a chance because now you've educated them. Yeah. You know, it kind of gets back to depending on the situation, like my farm here in Georgia it consists of a lot of food plots, small food plots, you know, some up to eight acres. Legally, we can bait here in Georgia. So I've got everything from places I go to where I put all you can eat bait or they have a food source that is all you can eat when it comes to a green field. So what I have typically done if I own a place of property that's private is I will create purposely habits. If I'm going to feed or go check my food plots, I will strategically do it. And I'm feeding, and I found that by these food sources, a lot of times, and in checking these cameras, especially around these bait stations, you're in there. The deer are very aware that you are coming into that stand. They hear your Polaris Ranger. They hear your four-wheeler. Uh, you know, they hear your kid that you told to be quiet, you know, daddy, 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 can we go to the dollar store? Can we maybe go get ice cream after we're done? <laughs> They're hearing this commotion. And a lot of times, I think you can go to your advantage, especially in those early summer months when you create that habit, kind of like a spin feeder in Texas. Those deer hear those feeders, they come to them. So that time of year, I think sometimes we overthink it as the season gets in, we think, oh my God, let's stay out of there. Well, you've been in there every four days. 
you know, and, and, and so I think sometimes we can give a deer too much credit that we think they're thinking like us. Really, they're just a wild goat that's horny and hungry. Um, and so at the end of the day, I'm not saying don't give them respect, but don't overthink it. They're not human animals. They're trying to avoid, but they're also smart enough to understand that, wait a minute, I'm, you know, if they could talk like, man, that's pretty cool, dude. He's leaving me a little bag of Big and J. And every time I hear that four there's a little bag of Big and J. And you will find if you look at your trail cameras, the day that you made the most racket and you went in there to feed that first day or the second day, they're in there pounding it, you know? And so, uh, I think what I typically do if I've established this food source where I become secret squirrel in my approach is say right now, I've got a couple green fields. Well, typically like it is across the country, those deer will venture out to those green fields, you know, at dusk or an hour after dark, and they'll feed a lot of times all night in that green field. So at daybreak, a lot of those deer are still out there. They're starting to drift back to the bedding area and through these transition areas through the woods. So I will have strategic entry points to know that I don't want to drive through this food plot in the morning so if it's on my hunting club, my property, I want a backdoor entrance to get on the backside of where I think those deer are coming back through. Um, and so that I do a lot. But I would say overall, the habits that I create in early summer, um, I will stick to that if it's on my personal property. But a lot of times I have created that commotion and that habit purposely to get those deer used to that. So if you're hunting in an area, let's say in a national forest, that hadn't had a lot of, you know, four wheeler of foot traffic, you're going to turn that deer inside out with, with, uh, with traffic back in there when they hear the mufflers and different things like that. However, you look at these people that are shooting these big deer in these subdivisions and stuff like that. I mean, it's almost like you're on, you in for a jog and I'm doing the same thing. I'm at the school bus stop, but no psych. You didn't know I was in this tree. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's just my thinking on it. I, I don't spend as much high level strategy on that because in my mind this deer is looking for an easy place to enter an easy place to eat he's looking for a doe when it comes time to breed and so wherever that can be it don't have to be in the deepest darkest circle to where i have to hike 10 miles to get in there and in a lot of cases i will establish a lot of places that i hunt they're right off the road they're right off the beaten path and a lot of times the best areas to do if you got to a personal piece of property if you can strategically not true recreation riding but if you can create a habit of when you're coming in to check or farm and stuff like that you can create a habit and so a lot of times dropping your friend off or having your wife drop you off from a truck or from a four-wheeler can be very high level strategy when some people would label that as lazy and to give you an example about that if you go to the midwest wisconsin's a prime example minnesota if you're there, what does every farmer that's got a pack of Marlboro Reds that drives a combine and got a John Deere tractor, here's what he'll tell you. We've been hunting for three days and can't get nothing. Then you see him, and he's over there and done full of grease, smoking Marlboro Reds and got a can of vine sausages and pot of meat and soda crackers in his combine. And he's like, man, you should have been with me. I jumped out and greased my combine to eat a little lunch. And that big old buck looked out there. He's 30 yards from me. And then I got in the combine and drove back around and, Heck, I had a corn, something was stuck and the thing was squeaking. I got out and pulled that stalk and went another circle and Joker was standing right there. You, matter of fact, if you want to, just jump on my combine. I believe we can go get a shot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy how much stuff like that happens. Because, you know, I mean, like there's scent and noise all over the place, but the deer just don't see that as a threat because it's just kind of part of their normal day-to-day -day basis. 
Yeah, there, there's no doubt. So I think in that strategy, it's so impossible to be invisible. So I think if you, it's kind of like turkey hunting now that's evolved. We're used to, you went to the woods, head to toe, real tree, to never be seen. And so now, what are we doing? Somewhere, you know, in early in my career, I figured out that the turkey's sight is their number one. Well, well right off the bat, I regulate their sight's the number one thing. So what are, we, what are we doing now to kill more turkeys? We're using their number one asset against them. We're showing them decoys. We're not even, you know, they either see them or we're showing them to them. We're hiding behind them. And whether people listening like that or not, somebody, and we figured it out, that we're going to use the number one asset to trick them. And so I think deer are the same way. You can use that comfort level of the combine. Use the comfort level of a farmer plowing a field and breaking up new dirt, and the deer is curious, and he's got to walk out there and just seem to walk in that fresh dirt. You can use things, but a lot of times we feel like we got to be a tunneler and tunnel in and become undetected and park our pickup you know, 17 miles away and walk to it. In the meantime, we done done all this, and we look at the guy out there, you know, switching over from his grain drill to a to a winter rake or something or or a harvester, and and he's out there, and he's you know he's a hundred yards from a big white tail buck running a doe. <laughs> we don't walk seven miles, and we think maybe I should just pulled up, parked on the corner down here, and been right here. So the biggest thing I wouldn't say don't think, but don't overthink it. Don't make it too complicated and don't make this animal, don't make this animal smarter than you. He's not. He just has an uncanny ability to survive knowing that he's a nocturnal animal. He don't, he understands different type of pressure, but if you can establish and hunt around the normal, typical pressure, whether it's a farm, whether it's a public ground or whatever, they do get used to habits. So as you said, those entries and exits and how you go about it, I try not to change anything. I try to keep the continuity the same. I try to feed my place the same time. I try to check trail cameras unanimously at the same time, refresh stuff. That's what I try to do. And then depending on the time of year, I might go a little bit more secret squirrel or a little bit Navy SEAL different. But in reality, it don't sound too macho, but it's not over the top. It really isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so much great information there. Very cool. So when – when do your strategies start to change? You know, like, so we're, we're ramped into the pre-rut ruts come in, you know, when, when do you start changing strategies from rut to post rut and what are you doing differently? You know, it, it's probably been said a million times, but really, you know, the deer and their habits is definitely what changes your strategy because it could be a food source that dries up, or it could be obviously these deer are run down, so hard and there's always an area or time right after the rut maybe a week or so after the rut to where you think that all the bucks on your place just disappeared um i can't give you a guarantee example where those deer go i do know they're exhausted i do know they're depleted they run hard if you're in those states uh those northern states that cold weather takes a toll on them they have been completely concentrating on breeding they haven't been taking care of themselves they're run down they're being going and having to fight off places and trespassing on places in other bucks territory. So they seem to kind of go underground, but as soon as they kind of get the wits about them and realize the rut's over, obviously it switched that, that food source again. And if the winter gets cold, that's when the hunting becomes the best and those big bucks become vulnerable. So I would say as the seasons change, um, 
it's the deer habits that change that you have to be adoptive or adaptive and know that you're not worried about the does anymore. You, you're trying to figure out what is the best food source. And you got a deer, especially in the northern months, that maybe it's December and you find you're getting that consistent 10 degree weather and it's cold, the snow is hit. And that buck is so depleted, he's lost a third of his body weight and he is a completely run down and he has to eat. He has to find those beans. He has to find that leftover corn. He has to find some, you know, uh, acorn trees. If you're in a situation where you can legally put out bait, you might change that strategy to where you go back to some of that. You know, I, I keep using the word big and J, but you go into that big and J that's got some rich protein and those deer realize that, wow, this is some good, solid, this is some good, solid food um, to, to eat. It, it seems, it seems that, you, you know, just like us, we crave certain things and I'm, I'm convinced our body kind of lets us know it's kind of like you know if you've been out having a good time got your foot caught in a fun wheel something about a cheese a, a greasy cheeseburger just feels like that's what's it you know <laughs> if, you, if you're training for a football game or you're getting ready to go play a, a you know a, a softball game where you're gonna be running we always know that man just to maybe a, a you know a light piece of chicken and a and some and some car a little bit of carbs and eating a little cleaner maybe a salad is what i want but Man, if you've been playing hard and you come off of it, a bucket of fried chicken sounds good. So I think at certain times of the year, if you can establish what is that bucket of fried chicken to this buck who's buck who's tired, who's been running, who's been partying hard, and you can establish that either naturally or artificially, and you can start going back to those trail cameras and establish that this buck is doing this. Typically, it changes from a good morning strategy when you've had pre-rut and rut to you go back to those evenings become premier. So... uh I don't know if that answered a lot, but I definitely think as it gets into that late season, that strategy changes and finding those deer on those food sources and those preferable food sources, they're going to be there. Guaranteed. They're going to be there. It's just a matter of them making a mistake once again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's some great information. Just, you know, keying on the, the changing of the deer's attitude and then knowing that that food is king once, uh, once the rut is over, you know, like they've been running so much that, uh, you know, they got to rebuild and especially when it's colder, you know, up North and stuff like they've, they have to prepare for the winter. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. some awesome. As you know, as you know, that alone, that alone is a matter of life and death. I mean, that one key element, if, if you understand the biology of that, that key element can be a huge attribute and it could be the weather. It, it could be to seeing a storms coming and those deer, they don't have a choice. They got to eat to survive. That sounds cruel to hunt them in that vulnerable situation. But if you don't have vulnerable areas throughout the year, these big mature bucks, I think, would be impossible to kill. If you can't take advantage of his hunger or his you know, biological nutrition needs or his sexual desire, that's it. You just got a buck that's going to cruise around at night. He's going to eat. He's going to go back to his bedding area. They do not want to achieve a lot. They're not trying to become a celebrity. They're not trying to become the new YouTube star. They're not trying to host a TV show. They're not trying to impress any of the ladies. They have no moral standards. They have no care. They don't care if they've been judged like, dude, you laid around all day and night. You ain't done nothing. <laughs> they don't care. They don't care. If they can breed their mother, they will. If they can breed their sister. So you got to realize the true animal that they are. They're really not even just trying to survive. They just have no motivation to have to do one thing. Their only motivation is, wait a minute, I'm going to die if I don't eat. They're motivated. I, I'm going to eat. I'm in danger, but I got to go eat. I know there's some corn down here. 
I, I know it's brut, and I, I know that these does are coming in estrus. The last time I bred that doe, it was an amazing opportunity, and that feeling was great. I want to do that as many times as I can. I'm not going to pick out one doe and just breed her the rest. Of, I want to breed every doe out there. That selfishness and that complete jerk syndrome, you have to take advantage of that. Then if you take a buck this early season, you have to take advantage of his optimistic pattern that he's like, man, every day I come down through here at the same time, sleep all night, mosquitoes suck a little bit, but it's all good. Found me a nice cedar tree. It's shady. And dude, I don't know if this tree is coming off the ground, but there's some tasty food down there. And there's a few acorns. It's good. And I think it's six o'clock every day, unless that dang old hound dog runs through the woods, that that joker got that rabbit dog or that lab and that kid on that four-wheeler, I'm going to come down there at the same time every day. So you're taking advantage of his, basically, he ain't like you, me and you. We got our jobs. We got a million things pulling at him a different way. They got nothing. They have no worry. They have no standards. They have no care. They have no popularity contest they're running. They all have different attitudes, and there's some bucks that's not as sexually active. They are impossible to kill. They're tough to kill. You have those young two-and-a-half, three-year-olds that do so much of the breeding. They're everywhere. How many times have you and your buddy, y'all be a mile apart, and each of you see two or three of the same eight-pointers or, or young ten-pointer, and you're like, good night. He come by me twice. Like, well, he come by me two different times as well. So that book had done been all over everybody's property, and that's why a lot of them get killed. So uh, like I said, for me, I, I take a very practical, common-sense approach in knowing that these animals are very selfish they're really jerks. A lot of anti-hunters see them as cuddly. They're cool. They don't want to hurt nobody, but they don't care helping nobody either. They're, they're all about themselves. A big mature buck, when he comes up to another buck that he thinks potentially could breed another doe, the fifth doe that he's going to breed that year, if he can kill him, he'll kill him. He'll straight break his horns off his rack. It's like, just because he's that selfish. If he can sit there and all the other deer starve and he can get all the corn, he will. When's the last time you saw deer walk into a corn pile or to a food plot and they look over like, hey, man, were y'all going to eat here? I, you know, I was going to get some of this clover. No, he just walks in like, I'm going to eat all the clover. If you starve, that's fine. <laughs> me and you, the last pizza, pizza, you know, you always got that buddy who don't ever look up. But, me, you know, a lot of times you go to a place and if you're around friends and new friends, that last piece of pizza or that last Mountain Dew in the cooler, it's like you want it, but you feel like a jerk grabbing it. We well, got to keep in mind, these deer have no care about that. There's no standards. There's no marriage certificates out there. If this three-and-a-half-year-old buck can take a doe from a five-and-a-half-year-old deer, they do that. And that's why when it comes lockdown time, when these bucks are really – or these does are in estrus and they're breeding, that's why whether it's a young buck or a big buck, especially the big bucks, they'll cut those doe off into a deep, dark corner. And they just are so selfish, they don't want to have to battle any other deer. They're not going back to these social hubs. They're trying to get her in the weirdest, most odd place. And that's why you see – Sometimes you you know you drop your kids off the school bus stop early in the morning, and then you go not even a mile down the road, and there's a deer got a you know doe cut down into a cut bank, and you're like, what is that deer doing there? Well, he's selfish. He don't want that deer to go back to that cornfield. He don't want her to go back to that typical bedding area because he's got all those little two and a half year old mall studs trying to breed her too. He wants to have her all to himself, and he will take her to an odd place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so much great information there. We've uh, we've covered quite the gamut of of strategies and tactics. Is uh, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet? So maybe just some quick hit recommendations, best tips from Michael Waddell. I I, I think a lot of it we covered. It, and and, and uh, again, the, the one thing 
I just want to make clear to every listener or every person who tunes in that sees this is, man, everything I've talked about, I'm very passionate about, you know, some techniques and different things. But, man, I don't know it all. And that's the beauty I love the most about hunting is every day I learn. And every day that learning becomes so much fun. So even on this, man, if there's any way to get in touch with Chills or leave comments or even Bone Collector, man, let us know because they could be something I said. He's like, no, Waddell, I found the exact opposite happened here, and here's the proof, and here's what I've seen. That's how we learn. And so the biggest thing I would leave is, is one is I don't know it all, but I'm so excited to talk shop with the people that also have passion you know, to hunt like I do. And, and that's how we learn. That's how we get better because it could be some simple stuff. I mean, it's kind of like fishing with Kevin Van Dam. My son's a big tournament fishing. He's actually fishing the uh, national championship uh, just yesterday. He was, he was fishing the national championship down on the on the Harris chain in Florida for the collegiate national championship on, on Bassmasters. And we were talking about fishing. I said, I'm convinced that the uh, Andy Morgans, the Kevin Van Dams, you know, we're overthinking this. I guarantee you there's some little simple thing they're doing one little small thing in their angle or depth or bait that it's just like, oh, my God, that's what he's doing. So a lot of times we think that it's rebuilding a rocket or it's, you know, uh, it's it's brain cancer that or brain scientists or surgeon, whatever. It, it's, it's sometimes very simple. And so uh, I don't think I know it all. I've just learned over the years to take a lot more laid back, practical, simple approach and in the end, no matter how technical or what we do, if we spray down and we walk into the tree stand naked and then that's where we put on our new element clothes with the, the different technology that keeps us scent free, if that's fun to you, that's what you do. But if you're the guy that wants to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, go to the local cafe and eat bacon and cheese grits with your family and your hunting club members and go to the stand, whether you see something or you shoot the biggest buck, on your property, that's what you do because 2020 has proved to be one thing. We all work too hard to not enjoy every moment. One thing for sure, we all on death row. None of us are going to be here forever. And so every little moment we can enjoy with our family, our friends, hunting, whether it's high-level strategy or just simple sitting on the dove bucket, you know, or, or fishing for a bluegill, whether it's one we're going to throw back or whether it's a catfish that we're going to eat. We just got to have fun. So I think overall, my biggest tip is for the hunting industry is to gear it down to learn to have fun first and to enjoy yourself. And just like right here, come here, come here, Waylon. I got my little boy right here. Speaking of fun, what you got? This is my little four-year-old. Oh, hey, buddy. How you doing? (laughs) He's been bashful. He he just had to dress up as a dinosaur today, so... Prime example on that little rant I was giving. This, this is what it's all about. Just having fun and having a good time. And uh, he and I, we'll go sit in a redneck blind so many times, and we, we won't see but a couple of does. And he's over there playing around, goofing off, and we're just having a good time. So, Oh, absolutely. I mean, my, my number one favorite memory of deer hunting is, or just hunting in general was um, was with my four-year-old daughter. It was it was turkey hunting this spring. Brought her out going behind my grandparents' place and uh, and she did a little did a little interview like a mini Eva Shockey and uh, we had some turkeys come in and uh, and I ended up getting a shot on one, rushed the shot, whiffed it, you know, like normally yeah. that's not one of your favorite memories, but I looked at her and she just go Dad, that was awesome. You still made a good <laughs> shot, and I love you. I was like, wow, that is just, 
That's great. That's really what it's all about. It really is. And that story you just told, that is what it's about. And and that's what I love about hunting. It can go to this. I mean, you and I could be in elk camp tomorrow or deer camp. Depending on our mood or the stress level that we've had with our job, you might say, what well, you know what? I, I'm going to sleep in to 7, 30, 8 o'clock and I'm going to get out there and I'm going to find me a good spot to hunt and I'm going to go ahead and thaw some meat and I'm going to make this chili that's going to blow your mind. And uh, I know you got a good cigar and later tonight, let's sit out by the fire and, and have a cigar. And so it could be that that time you meet needing hunting camp really ain't about filling the tag. You might need a getaway. You might need just a couple stories. You might need a hug from old Uncle Waddy over here. You might need a story. You might need just a, a little later sleep. Are you not, are, are the opposite of what you might need is you might say, I'm getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I know dang well that buck is screwing up. He's coming in over there off Mr. Johnson's cornfield, but he's coming down that saddle and draw. Dang it. I'm Set the alarm. Get me up at 3.30, and I'm going to pack in there, and I'm going to hang this stand before daylight. I'm going to hang it before daylight, and I'm going to be waiting on that joker. And it might be that technique that got you, and you worked double hard and, and pulled a Cameron Haynes freaking athletic stunt that was bigger than anything that's the beauty of it. We can put whatever we want to any particular time and society don't have to judge us as to if we the most amazing hard nosed hunter at the end of the day, your daughter, you know what she loved more than anything. She was there with her daddy End the story. It wasn't about the deer. It was about y'all being there together. And the thing she saw around that time with you meant everything. So, uh, I always tell people a trophy room, a trophy room is nice. But if you build your whole hunting career over what success you have on that wall more than you do the memories you made of what you might put on the wall, you're going to be lonely and you're going to be just dusting a lot of deer heads by yourself. But if you do it the right way, everybody you got is going to be around and they're going to want to be at your house and they're going to be hang out and you can go share, you know, their trophy room the same way. Cause in reality, what you realize is the trophy room ain't the wall. The trophy room is everything that you and I have to talk about and those experiences, the frustrations, the success. And so I think that's the biggest thing the hunting industry is starting to miss. We at Bone Collector and you guys at Shields do a good job of that, of celebrating the simple things. And the complicated things are the big bucks and getting them in bow range and getting that heart rate down and those jitters and be able to make a successful shot. Just like last night, me missing that buck. I was shaking like a leaf and I don't, I don't even know how many deer I killed. But I was still shaking like it was my first one. So uh, I know I'm spitting a lot of different things, but I'm very passionate about that. And I think that is what is going to keep the hunting section and shield surviving. I think that is what's going to keep people coming in. And maybe they saw something that makes them to discover that area in shields. Maybe they leave the kids Little League Baseball or soccer or lacrosse or the camping area. It's like, wait a minute, what? What's these broadheads? These G5 broadheads, what do they do? You know what? 2020, I didn't have any turkey or any chicken breast and couldn't even find a ribeye in the store because of this pandemic. Honey, I want let's learn to hunt, and we will have a big old Wisconsin doe that we can put in the freezer, and we'll feed ourselves. And I think it'd be fun to learn to bow hunt. Uh, I want to be like that girl on Hunger Games, whoever it is or whatever it is. And so I don't think we need to single out a certain way we got to hunt. I just think being outdoors is the number one key and we'll find what we enjoy most about it once we start doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
anyone can hunt any way they want to. Just the most important thing is to get out there and experience it and, and enjoy it. And yeah, like you said, a trophy room full of bucks is great, but, uh, you know, a trophy, trophy room full of memories is even better. Yep. And and again, there's a lot of people I know they're lonely people with a lot of big deer that don't even have friends because they've run over their wife they've run over their brother they've run out run over everybody in the hunting club and they just are you know just basically not necessarily bad people but their desire for success on just another big buck has drove them to a place to where they're not fun and in the end you know you're not always going to have the help to scale up the mountain you're not always going to have the help to even get 20 foot in a tree whether it's a lock on or ladder stand one day you're going to have to be sitting there, and you're just going to have an animal that's dead on the wall that can't communicate with you. He can't talk to you. He's not going to wash your dishes. He's not going to cook you supper. He's not going to ever say another word or give you any uh, conversation. The only thing you have is that memory of how you got him. And when you have done that with friends and family, my God, it makes it even sweater, sweeter. So I would rather have three deer that I can tell a story like that than the seven deer that I'm ashamed of how I went about to kill him. Mm-hmm. absolutely so you know it's so much great information i just you know i love the insight on on hunting in general and just your passion it's it's so great to see your absolute passion for the outdoors and hunting so thank you again for your time and man thank you guys and i gotta tell one quick shield story too and 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 all you say man it means a lot to me because that is i'm so blessed to have traveled the country you know, growing up in, in rural Georgia, man, I never thought I'd get to see, you know, what Wisconsin looked like, you know, the first week in November and that frost and those cedars and that thick stuff. I never thought I'd see northern, you know, Minnesota, uh, never thought I'd see northeast Montana or ever have a chance to hunt in Iowa around those cut cornfields and those little true pinch points and funnels or maybe even hunt elk in New Mexico or Colorado. And so for me, it was an experience that I thought, that man the good lord's gave me this one opportunity and i'm not going to waste it well now a lot of those opportunities have multiplied into many and sometimes every year and so through that i don't ever take them for granted but the number one thing i've enjoyed is the people i've met you know people like you and having conversations like this around campfires i have made some unbelievable friends and here's what's funny is we're in this crazy year of politics um Man, a lot. Of, you don't have to agree on politics. You don't have to agree on everything. You don't have to agree on so many things. But when you're a hunter, you, you become one. And so the outdoors has brought me close to a lot of different cultures that I didn't even know about and understand. It's brought me close to a lot of different areas and different countries that I knew nothing about historically. But in the end, whether it was in Botswana or Wisconsin or Georgia, Alabama, you share that common bond of being in the outdoors. And so for me, that, that, and those stories are the, are the biggest trophies. And, uh, it's just been amazing. And, and it's funny. One of the things I remember I was talking about the shield story. I remember the first time I'd never been to a shield store and, um, obviously living in Georgia, we didn't, we didn't have any shields. And, um, and it was the first store that I ever saw to where the guns were in, on displays, you know, around the floor. So, you know, there's always a gun counter typically, and you had to walk up and ask the gun specialist, Hey, can I look at that, you know, 1022 or that 300 mag or that, you know, new shotgun. And, and I remember just, I remember literally like a kid 
every gun I picked up and looked at, every one, every every shotgun, everything. And then I eased over, and I was I was younger. I was in my twenties, and and I the the, the softball bats. I, I I sat there and worked, and so and I looked at every softball bat, every glove, everything, and I'd never seen a place that was had this much inventory, but all had the professional, the best, the stuff you typically find just in these you know off the main shoot dealers. So the, the funny part of this story is I go up there, I'm married. I think I had $200 cash in my pocket and a credit card with maybe a, you know, a thousand dollars limit. Cause I, I, I was, you know, I was broke when I left, I maxed out my credit card, spent <laughs> $200 that I had in my pocket. And I was there working. I was there supposed to be helping customers in shields as an employee of Realtree buy stuff. But I don't think uh, I don't think I sold anything. I just bought everything I had, and I, I man, Bill Jordan laughed at me for ten days when I told him that story. So uh, so Shields, there's a love hate. Y'all y'all took all my money the first time I ever worked for y'all up there. I, I went up there and just spent all my money that I had, maxed out my credit card. So that's the beauty. So if you've never been to a Shields and you see the sign, stop in, and you're gonna see some good guys and some good young men and women. And uh, you're going to have the right product, and they're going to sell you something. Even if they don't sell it to you, you're just going to sell yourself. So, uh, so yeah, get to a Shield store, and I promise you, you'll remember exactly what, what old Waddy said. You, you, you better make sure uh, that, that you have enough limit on your credit cards because there's going to be some cool stuff you got to buy. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. So, And, I mean, what we really strive ourselves on is uh, – is having something for everyone and uh, having the experts in the store that are knowledgeable to help you get yep. exactly what you need. So, yep. Well, as you know, we all need a lot. And when you got all the cool things you need, you got to, you got to bring some of them home. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. So again, thank you so much for your time and, and sharing all that knowledge. We, we greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for the hospitality y'all always showed me when I come up and, uh, and visit the stores. And a lot of you guys I've become good friends with. So thank y'all and uh, everybody listening. Thank y'all for listening. And sorry for getting long-winded. I just get passionate and excited. And uh, and I'm about to, as I hang up, I'm about to go get my stuff on and crawl back in the stand. Maybe I can get a second chance at a, at a nice buck tonight. Maybe I can redeem myself. All right. There you go. Well, best of luck with your hunting season. And uh, and hopefully you get another crack on at that buck. Dang right, man. Well, thank you, brother. Y'all take care. And by the way, y'all make sure, go vote. I voted in Georgia today. Don't matter what you vote for. Just make sure you vote. Let your, let your voice be heard. <laughs> Very good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You just heard our segment with Michael Waddell of Bone Collector. He went through so much awesome information from rut strategies to post rut to lures and tips and tricks and everything in between. If you, uh, if you have any additional questions, feel free to reach out to us in the comments on social media at Shields Outdoors, Facebook or Instagram, or stop into one of our local stores. We have a plethora of experts willing to share stories, recommendations, and get you set up with everything you need for the rest of the whitetail season. And with that, we want to thank you all for listening and see you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.